Hello, and welcome to Decent Jobs on a Living Planet, an environmental podcast where we talk to people, from experts to activists, about just transition and what it means from a Scottish perspective. The term just transition originates from trade unions. So what does it mean? We know that fossil fuels are fueling the climate crisis and we need to move away from them. However, fossil fuel industry is a major player in Scottish and UK society and economy. There are 30,000 people directly employed in the UK offshore oil industry, a further 70,000 in domestic supply chains, and thousands more living in communities heavily reliant on the fossil fuel industry. How do we make a transition away from fossil fuels in a way that is just for workers, communities and the planet? With the global pandemic and economic turmoil, the context of discussions around just transition are hugely different now. While jobs in many industries are looking precarious, jobs in the fossil fuel industry are more precarious than ever and workers' rights have come to a forefront. Talking about a just transition is therefore more important than ever. Today, we are speaking to Benjamin Witt from the London Mining Network to discuss the report that they recently published with member group War on Want called A Justice Transition is a Post-Extractive Transition. This report explores the social and ecological implications of current climate change mitigation models, which as they outline are based on neocolonial extractivism. Due to the pandemic, we recorded this episode over a video call, so we thank you for bearing with us with the audio quality. I'm so excited to have um, Whit and Benjamin here from the London Mining Network. Thank you so much for joining me. I would love to know a little bit more about the London Mining Network and what you do within that network. Okay, great. Well, I think I'll start. It's Whit here. London Mining Network, or LMN for short, it's an alliance of organisations concerned about human rights, social justice and ecological integrity of the planet. So we work primarily in solidarity with communities around the world affected by the activities of mining companies that are based or funded from the UK. Um, We also work to promote sustainable development in the context of global mining industry. And rather than use the word UK, we kind of called ourselves, we focused really on the London part primarily because of the role of the City of London, i.e. the financing of the mining industry. And London's the host of most of the world's biggest mining companies and many of the smaller mining companies which are listed on the London Stock Exchange. Um, and the smaller, smaller version, which is called the Alternative Investment Market. And those companies include the likes of BHP, Rio Tinto, Anglo-American and Glencore, which hopefully some of your listeners may have heard of. So the network consists of 21 member groups and nine associate member groups. And how it works, the sort of work it does is, I mean, it does a lot of sharing and coordinating between the different member groups. Um, some of what it does is working directly supporting impacted communities. I think we're particularly well known for supporting community representatives to attend London uh, annual general meetings to the companies as sort of proxy or representative shareholders. I think this gives an important opportunity for people to directly confront power, you know, to talk to the company board and directors face to face in a fairly public forum. And then the other things we do, some of it's raising awareness with members of the public, so press, social media. We also do educational work. We also undertake various advocacy. And then finally, we conduct research 
I think that's where some of the discussions we're going to come uh, are going to come in here because we produced a recent report um, with member group War and Want called "A Justice Transition Is a Post-Extractive Transition." Um, and then for me personally, I helped to set up LMN back in 2007, and I'm currently the voluntary co-chair. And I guess in the context of this discussion, it's also worth saying that I convened a working group on a just transition. So that's where kind of different staff, volunteers and member representatives come together to kind of share and plan our joint work around these issues. And lastly, worth saying that for my paid work, I'm mainly working um, on deep sea mining at the moment, which again is kind of relevant in terms of one of the areas that's talked about to, to try and plug the minimal gap needed for the energy transition. Over to you, Benjamin. I became involved with the London Mining Network in 2017, um, initially as a volunteer, and then later as a member a member of the uh, advisory committee, which I'm I'm still part of, and uh, off and on taking on um, different projects um, as a consultant, including including this research project on uh, the relationship between the transition uh, to low carbon technologies and its mineral footprint. And I should say that today I now um, I work for an organization based in the US called Earthworks on a campaign that is um, very, very closely related um, to these issues at the intersection of, of minerals, mining, and uh, the transition. Our, our podcast is really exploring what a just transition means from a Scottish perspective, but also a kind of global justice perspective as well. Um, and one thing that we asked um, everybody that we interview for our podcast is what a just transition means to them. Um, so the term just, you know, just transition uh, has been primarily associated with the labour movement and um, really inspiring uh, examples of collaboration between labour and environmental groups. Um, and it's, it's largely focused on the need to ensure that workers in the fossil fuel industry and other carbon intensive sectors are an active part of the transition, um, that their livelihoods are not sacrificed, that they're not left behind, but rather that um, they, they are a part of the transition itself and that their livelihoods are, are secured in that process. And a basic principle here is that those responsible for the climate crisis, and in this case, namely corporations, should be the ones to pay, um, not workers. Um, but the, re the report um, that we're discussing today adopts a slightly different term, um, which is a justice transition. Uh, and I was first introduced to this term by Asad Raymond, who's the director of War on One. Um, and this term really expands the scope of what we mean to include everyone affected along the supply chains of fossil fuels, as well as renewables and low carbon tech. Um, so in this case, for example, the case of electric vehicles, it would mean um, the need to work in solidarity with communities whose homes uh, are current or proposed sites of extraction for minerals and metals. Um, it means uh, working to build power among workers in battery factories. Um, and it means ensuring the, the accessibility, the economic accessibility of different transit options for people around the world, knowing that electric vehicles are not, and, and simply, you know, it's, it's not feasible that, uh, you know, personal uh, private passenger vehicles will be an accessible transit option or a sustainable transit option for most people. Um, and it also means thinking about the waste stream. So what happens at the end of life of these products? So it's a, it's a I think the, the term of justice transition is trying to take a, a bit of a broader, more holistic 
look at these issues of justice in, in the transition. You make the link between extractivism and neo-colonialism in this report and I'm just wondering for for those who will be listening that are maybe not familiar with these concepts if you could explain each of these terms and then how they're linked to each other. Yeah absolutely um, I think I'll take this one as well. Um, so extractivism is I think it, it, unfortunately comes across as a pretty inaccessible and, and jargony term um, but it's essentially all it means is extraction of um, what we refer to as natural resources or, or common ecological goods at an intensity and a scale um, and with a level of impact that um, is, is, is pretty extreme. So we're not talking about extraction. We're not talking about small-scale extraction. We're not talking about you know, small-scale agriculture um, or even small-scale mining. We're talking about really large-scale industrial processes um, and we're also talking about a set of power relations where those who are benefiting from these processes and the destination um, of these of these extracted resources um, are not those are not those who who, who suffer the impacts, right? And are, and are not not the the territories and, and the regions um, where these materials are being extracted. But often um, it's the industrial centers of the global north and the centers of capital. Um, who are benefiting economically from this process. Um, so it's, it's, it's a term that's useful um, it, to the extent that I think it, it helps us differentiate between different forms of extraction. Um, and there's a, uh, an Uruguayan academic, Eduardo Gulinas, who I highly recommend, uh, who's written extensively about um, these different concepts of extractivism and extraction, different kinds of extraction. Um, and I think it's just a it's a it's a conceptual framework to help to help differentiate right between what is indispensable and what is part of a, a process of um, giving and, and and recreating life, um, which does involve you know, some degree of extraction, and then extractivism, which is this really um, this this process that's really driven by a set of interests in, in, in um, which are of course capitalist interests and also neocolonial interests. Um, in this report. Um, what we meant by neocolonialism was specifically the dynamics of power inherited from uh, centuries of European uh, colonization. So neocolonialism in this, in this case could refer to really direct relationships. Like for example, a company that's listed in London um, that was formerly a colonial project of the British empire um, and has evolved into a, uh, a multinational corporation um, that is, listed on the London Stock Exchange. It could also mean the dynamics of power, so processes of ongoing uh, internal colonization and ethnocide, so um, the ongoing disposition of indigenous lands um, in countries around the world. Um, so it's, it's, what it really refers to is, is, is a, pattern of, um, a pattern of power dynamics, where again, those who are benefiting um, and those who are, are suffering the consequences um, often fall into, into uh, roles that were established um, in the period of, of European colonization. The, the report talks about the, the growth of the renewable sector and many people see the growth of the renewable sector overtaking a declining fossil fuel sector as like a really straightforward win, it's solving all our problems, but your report um, cautions people against this. Um, like highlighting the link between the renewable sector and mining. Um, so could you explain the link for people who aren't aware of its importance? 
I think two quick points first. I think the first is in practice, this just transition rightly general tends to be seen just in the focus of the climate crisis. But I think also we need to see it within a wider uh, section, certainly of, of many interlinked crises, including, for instance, the loss of biodiversity and their social and environmental crises as well. So I think we need to address all of those. So I think one overarching uh, point made in the report is that kind of digging and processing more finite resources to solve one crisis isn't going to solve all of these intersecting crises that may make things worse. And the second point to make is obviously to stress we do need to switch to renewables. I mean, obviously we're raising red flags, but I mean, we at LMN have been working on the problems of coal for many years, and it's still a focus for a number of our members. So the end of the fossil fuel industry is definitely necessary for the survival of the planet. So having said that, however, yeah, I think one of the things to point out is, as with many things, the word renewables covers many different types of activities. I mean, it could stretch all the way from, for instance, a large-scale hydroelectric dam, which could displace huge numbers of people, that's often interestingly for aluminium smelting, um, all the way through to sort of small-scale distributed solar panels across you know, villages in developing communities. So I think we need to be able to differentiate um, but I think even regardless of what your vision of renewables is, one thing that's been overlooked is you know, that basically you're going to need more minerals to build the infrastructure that's necessary. So I think it's worth explaining that I think there's three areas where you're going to need more minerals for. The first is in the actual items that are providing the renewable energy. So for instance, for solar panels, for wind turbines, for geothermal plants, I think there's an estimate that a single three megawatt wind turbine needs 335 tonnes of steel, almost five tonnes of copper, three tonnes of aluminium and up to two tonnes of rare earth elements. So you get an idea of the, the scale that's required if you amplify the numbers that are required. That's a lot of digging, a lot of processing. And again, unlike fossil fuels, which need to be constantly mined in order to act as a fuel, these items should only need to be built once. They should have relatively long lives and they can ideally be recycled. But for worlds with this sort of growing energy needs, obviously we need a huge scale of a switch. So I think that's where a lot of the, the issue around the size and the minerals is required. So the second area is batteries for storage. Um, so some of these are storage, for instance, if you're powering vehicles, some of it is storage if you have renewables like wind and sun that are only intermittent. So obviously in the past we've tended to need minerals like lead and zinc for batteries. Increasingly now more efficient batteries are using lithium and cobalt. And I think that's where a lot of the crux of these um, problems have come up because there's predictive sort of massive growth in the need for these minerals that have not really been key industrial minerals up to now. Um, so there may be some sort of disruptive innovation which could change that demand so then substitute those minerals and I think particularly cobalt partly because it's it's got such a problematic um, situation at the moment where it's mainly mined in the Democratic Republic of Congo with well-known human rights abuses associated in conflict there's a, a need for the industry to switch but if they do, they're likely to switch to nickel um, and nickel has its own problems. It's very often to open cast mines in countries like Indonesia and Philippines. So, you know, so I don't think there's an easy um, solution anywhere. And just to say the third and final one is that is, 
the metals required for transmission, which is mainly you're talking about copper wire, and that would probably be needed regardless of whether it's renewables or not, but I mean, it is another metal that's required. So I think put all that together, you're talking about a massive potential increase in the need for minerals. I think World Bank Group report, Minerals for Climate Action, which was published recently, found that uh, production of minerals such as graphite, lithium and cobalt could increase by nearly 500% to 2050 to meet this demand. Um, and it estimates over 3 billion tonnes of uh, minerals and metals will be needed to switch. Um, we have to work out, you know, we have to dive into some of those assumptions that are made and assertions that are made around those estimates. I mean, you often see articles which state categorically there will be this percentage of increase. But in truth, you know, they're all guesses based on the, the best assumptions at the time. And they can easily be affected by our own choices and our own actions. People often talk about the need for you know, a billion plus electric vehicles, but that's only going to happen if there's a direct swap. So therefore, what's the alternative? Well, generally what we're looking at is an increased focus on what's called a circular economy. So it's the idea of closing the loop on resources. So increasing the reuse, repurpose, recycling. Um, and also that's linked with degrowth as well, this idea that we don't have to slavishly follow the idea that constant growth of GDP is the only way forward. So all of those intertwine, I think, to ensure that you know, we don't necessarily need this vision of, of a, a massive increase, but I think it will still require radical changes, it will still require innovation in product design in thinking and I think you know the challenge that's a real challenge both on a personal level but also to governments and business and how they work. I mean I, I knew a little bit um, about the fact that renewable energy required mineral extraction and obviously that's not good but I, I didn't really have any idea of the actual direct impact of mining on global emissions um, and I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on you know why why this is so absent from the climate movement i think that's, that's that is a really good question and i'm not entirely sure i know the whole answer i mean i guess to put it in context um a 2019 un global resources output report noted that all of the extractive industries together are responsible for half of the world's carbon emissions and more than 80 percent of biodiversity loss that's huge but that's obviously all of the extractive industries but the non-fuel mineral part still was 26% of the carbon emissions, and that's a quarter of the total. I think much of that's down to the sheer amount, sheer volume of materials that's been mined or quarried. I think particularly if you include sand and gravel for construction, which is you know, a form of mining, the amounts that have been used have surged nearly fivefold from 1970 to the present. So that's about 9 billion to about 44 billion tonnes, which is just such a huge amount. And you've also got to think of the amount of not just the minerals themselves, but obviously they tend to be a very small. In fact, as we're running out of them more and more, increasingly small um, proportions to the amount of overburn, the amount of excess rock and waste rock that's dumped. So I, mean, I think it's a, a very wasteful and a very energy intensive uh, industry, which makes it all the more sad that we have been so slow to focus on recycling. But so having said that, I, you know, I, so I don't entirely know why it's so little notice. I think part of the answer has to be that, you know, we've had a focus on one key campaign to shift opinion. I think that's been necessary to focus on, you know, fossil fuels. 
But I think sometimes that simplification sort of risks losing the bigger picture. Um, and I suppose in a way we're almost guilty as ourselves. When we started LMN in 2007, part of our focus was on the damage that coal did because at the time we thought people had a focus only on oil and gas. So, I mean, we wanted to try and expand out as well. Obviously, we, we are, we're doing our best to make these arguments now. You know, we produced the report, we're talking to you, but I think also importantly, we are, we're doing our best to bring the voice of those affected or potentially affected by the minerals aspect of this problem you know, to the attention of the public here in Europe, you know, in, in the UK and Scotland, and also to decision makers that are going to be happening in the forthcoming climate talks as well. Yeah, you also talk a lot about how um, mining companies, companies are using renewable technology as a greenwashing tool to attract investment and justify new projects. Um, could you explain the narrative that they're using and, and why it's so deceitful? Sure. Um, I mean, it's, 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 it's pretty astonishing to see um, companies, for example, like, like BHP or Anglo-American, um, which are some of the largest multinational mining companies in the world. Um, both of them are listed on the London Stock Exchange. Um, both of them are companies that London Mining Network follows very closely. And these are companies that have horrific legacies of, of harm um, to communities and to ecosystems around the world. Um, these are companies that both of which still actively mine coal. Um, and these are companies which very successfully are telling their investors, their shareholders, um, telling governments around the world, um, international financial institutions, and even some, some NGOs and some civil society organizations that they are key actors in the transition to renewables because they mine metals like copper or iron. Um, and it's, you know, obviously it's true that these metals are, are used in low carbon technologies, but the reality is that the demand today uh, from the renewable energy sector for these metals is negligible um, in comparison with the rest of their end uses, the rest of their applications. And of course there's, you know, no one knows what, what future um, demand for these, these metals will be. Um, there are some projections that, you know, that, are, that show very, very high levels of demand for, for metals like copper um, or, or aluminum. Um, but it's important to understand that what really drives demand um, for these metals is, is economic growth, right? It's, it's, a, it's a model of um, indefinite economic growth, which is driven by countries in the global north. It's driven by um, countries that have historically benefited and continue to benefit from, uh, from the global, global economy. Um, and the companies, of course, who are responsible for colonialism, companies that are uh, countries that are responsible for, for the climate crisis to begin with. Um, and so, to, to, to justify a copper mine today saying that copper is needed for the transition is simply deceitful because the reality is that that copper, um, the likelihood that that copper will end up in any renewable energy technology is, is slim. Um, and of course, on top of that, supply chains are not transparent. So most companies have no idea um, where their metals end up. Um, to make these claims that uh, you know, a given mine is necessary, um, 
to meet the demands of the transition is 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 deceitful um, to the extent that it doesn't it doesn't paint the real picture of what's going on. And of course, it's deceitful because what's you know no mining company is is going around the world displacing communities and taking their water and their land and you know blasting holes in the earth for the transition. They're doing it because it profits them, right? Um, but then there's also some really like even more you know absurd. Um, abuses of this narrative so there are, there are metals like gold for example you know gold the, the price of gold and what what drives the extraction of gold around the world is speculation gold is is an investment commodity um, industrial use of gold is, is is a really small um, driver of demand and the global above ground stocks of gold are massive and they're largely sitting in bank vaults I mean, we have enough gold sitting in bank vaults to meet industrial demand probably for centuries without mining again um, and gold mining is incredibly destructive. And so you have companies that are trying to pass off gold mines saying that, you know, gold is used, is used in some negligible um, amount in, in electronics and that those sorts of, um, you know, electronics will be used in renewable energy technologies. So there are some really tenuous, you know, really uh, weak arguments that are, that are being passed off. Um, and in the cases when there is a more direct connection between uh, the mining of, of, of a metal um, and its use in a low carbon technology, like with the case of lithium or cobalt or, or, or nickel, um, which are largely used in, well, lithium and cobalt today are, are, are largely used in, in, in batteries and, and um, the share of demand for, for nickel from the battery sector is also growing rapidly as Whit pointed out. Um, so for metals like this, there is a much more direct connection. But again, this is a narrative that assumes that, that this is the only path forward that this is an inevitable path and that we're going to need massive quantities of these metals. In fact, in some cases, many times more uh, of these metals than what we know currently exists uh, underground and has been proven to be uh, viable to extract in order to try to meet the demand of a billion electric vehicles. Um, and again, this doesn't, this doesn't address the issues of who will those vehicles be accessible to. Um, and it also creates this incredibly asymmetrical and incredibly unjust weight on communities by pitting them against uh, the climate crisis, right? So there, there's this really false narrative that a community that's trying to protect its land and protect its water and protect its right to exist and live and maintain their livelihoods, in many cases, indigenous communities, that their desire and their right to protect their land is somehow at odds with, with um, climate mitigation. And so you get these, again, these really sort of perverse narratives that are being spun by, uh, by these mining companies. And, and, it's, and it's being effective. I mean, there are, there are projects that are being fast-tracked in countries like the United States um, based on this narrative around critical minerals, which weaves together a concern for supplying minerals for the transition with a sort of national security and geopolitics and um, sort of very kind of militaristic narrative around uh, securing supplies of these metals from countries you know outside of china and and ideally within the us so you have all of these different narratives that come together which are pushing projects forward and they're attracting investment and political support for projects um and so it's 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 damaging and it's and it's working and right now the mining companies have been very successful in in, in pushing that story yeah i don't think i could add as well but i think that's that's a great explanation of it but i just love it basically because i work on uh, deep sea mining one of the most egregious examples is a, a company called deep green which you know with a name like deep green you would assume that it's some sort of environmental company 
or even an environmental NGO, but actually it's a deep sea mining company. It's one of the main companies that's pushing the idea of deep sea mining. But if you looked at the videos they make, the promotional videos with the CEO standing on the cliffs, looking out to the sea and it's all beautiful and windswept, you know, you'd think that they were, uh, they were saving the world. And that's the narrative that they use. Whereas really they're making arguments that land-based mining is terrible. So let's go and start mining in the sea. Um, so let's go and start mining in a completely pristine environment where we don't know what the level of damage to, to the local biodiversity is going to be. So, so again, I mean, for me, I think that's one of the, the, you know, the classic examples of how, you know, the, they're making those arguments that it needs to be done for the energy transition. Um, well, does it need to be done or do we need to look at how the energy transition works? I'd kind of like to hear of some examples of how um, mining is affecting communities already and maybe how they're fighting back as well. I mean, I'll, I'll just share uh, very, very quickly um, some, of the, some of the key issues associated with the, the mining of, of the battery metals that I mentioned, lithium, nickel and cobalt. But of course, I mean, the, the range of impacts on mining affected communities around the world is... Um, is, is so vast um, and so complicated. But if you look, for example, at lithium mining, lithium extraction um, from the brine of salt flats um, in countries like Argentina and, and Chile, there's a whole host of issues around um, the impacts on water um, and on, on the, the hydrogeology of, of the salt flats um, where brine is, is pumped from, from below the surface of, of the salt flat to the surface where it's then evaporated and um, thousands and thousands of, of liters of, of water is lost um, in, well, not thousands, I mean, many millions, but um, I mean, in some cases, thousands of liters per second um, of water are being evaporated off um, from these evaporation ponds. And, and what's left behind is, is the salt content, including the lithium. And of course, this, this process has an impact on, on the water table and these are projects that are being carried out in some of the driest regions in the world. Um, and the impacts on the surrounding aquifers, on the freshwater aquifers, which communities and which the biodiversity of these regions depend on, which agriculture of these regions depends on, um, is, still, is still poorly understood. And yet these companies um, are extracting massive amounts of this, of this brine and evaporating off the, the water content from it. You also have a whole host of, whole host of, of issues surrounding uh, the rights of these communities in Argentina and Chile and, and Bolivia, the areas where um, these, these salt flats are located are indigenous territories. Um, they're the home to Atacameña communities, they're the home to Coya communities, um, to Aymara and, and Quechua communities. And their rights, their right to free prior informed um, consent, um, the di different rights that they have fought for and, and won in, 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 the, in the different national contexts have often not been respected in, in the processes of exploration, prospecting, and development of these projects. Um, so there have been a whole host of lawsuits in Argentina and Chile against uh, lithium mining companies um, surrounding these issues. There's been protests, there have been road blockades, um, and there's, some really, there's a really inspiring, really inspiring story of 33 indigenous communities surrounding um, a, a, a water basin in Argentina called uh, Salina Grandes and the Laguna de Guayateoc. Uh, so it's a salt flat and a, a salt lake. Um, and they have very successfully organized and 
formed a, a really, really, really strong resistance movement, opposition movement to um, to lithium extraction in, in their lands and in their ancestral territories. And there are lithium companies that have been exploring there and that continue to explore and continue to seek concessions, but none of them have been successful in moving beyond that point. Um, and you know, those communities are very, very well organized against the incursion of companies into their into their land. Um, in in countries like Papua New Guinea, you have you have a lot of nickel and nickel cobalt mining, and you also have an issue. Uh, it's a little bit technical, but you have a particular issue with uh, nickel extraction in countries like Indonesia and Papua New Guinea and the Philippines, where in order to refine, in order to process the nickel ores from those regions to a, a quality that can be used in batteries, um, it requires a process known as high pressure acid leaching. As you can ima imagine, high pressure, high pressure and acid leaching that doesn't sound like a very friendly process. Um, and it is incredibly uh, destructive, incredibly toxic process, and it also produces a huge amount of waste material. And the preferred method for disposing of that waste material is dumping it in the ocean, which you can imagine has all sorts of effects on, on coastal habitats and of course on the coastal fisheries and the communities that live along the coastline. Um, there have been examples of um, a really horrific spill by uh, a mine called the, Ra the Ramu Mine in Papua New Guinea um, just, just recently. And so there's also lawsuits in opposition there um, against, against that nickel mining and processing for, for batteries, uh, electric vehicle batteries. And then as Whit mentioned in, in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, where most of the world's cobalt is, there's a whole host of issues there. But I think what's been really, really challenging and, and really, I think really sad about the whole story of uh, cobalt extraction and how the narrative around cobalt extraction has been told globally is the, is the, the fixation on artisanal mining um, as as the as the key issue or the key problem um, in these cobalt supply chains, rather than taking a much broader and a much more holistic look at the role of multinational corporations, the role of industrial mining, and also um, the failure to you know place artisanal miners at the center of the solutions to to these issues, and oftentimes. Artisanal miners, artisanal miners cooperatives have been entirely left out um, of, of the sorts of ways that uh, corporations and the companies downstream of the mining companies that consume cobalt have tried to imagine a solution to, to the issues associated with artisanal mining, particularly with child labor. And it's sad because there are artisanal mining cooperatives that are organizing and have proposed solutions um, centered around the formalization of artisanal mining, the sorts of support they would need in order to be free from the abuse and the militarization that they face. Um, and Instead, many companies have opted have opted to simply uh, try to cut artisanal uh, mined cobalt out of their supply chains altogether, or indeed seek cobalt from outside of the DRC altogether, or even going beyond that, try to seek battery chemistries which don't have any cobalt content, as as Whit mentioned earlier. Um, and none of those are real solutions to the issues. None of those actually help deliver the sorts of solutions that the people who are most impacted by the supply chain have envisioned for themselves. And it also leaves Companies like Glencore um, and other, you know, multinational companies off the hook, and these companies have have been accused of really, really, uh, you know, heinous examples of, of of corruption and illicit financial flows. So there's a whole host of issues there that aren't um, aren't being adequately addressed. Um, but again, people around the world are impacted very differently by each of these supply chains and their context, and they're all organizing and fighting back in different ways. And it's just a matter of reaching out and making the connections to, to those people who are impacted to try to better understand what the solutions are for them and, and how groups like ourselves can, can stand in solidarity with them and, and, and help support 
yeah i think that's yeah that's great absolutely although i mean obviously all you know the examples there are mainly in the global south i think you know it does include communities in in europe and i think particularly because of that um security issue in terms of security of supply that benjamin mentioned earlier you know there's a fixation now on uh, trying to grow the mining industry within Europe um, so that you know we have this secure supply so at the moment we have communities in Spain and Portugal who are resisting potential lithium mining there communities in Serbia will be affected by a proposed Rio Tinto lithium mine um, and also very close to home or relatively close to, to home if you're in England uh, you know there's talk of lithium and tungsten mining in Cornwall I believe there's also lithium exploration in Scotland. I don't know. I think it's not, you know, proved at the moment to be uh, particularly economic. But I think, you know, it's something we need to bear in mind in terms of future work that we can do is that idea that, that mining may well be coming home. Wow, I didn't know that. Um, yeah, that's that's really interesting to hear about the ways that um, Indigenous and land-based communities are fighting back as well as actually communities in Europe. So kind of you know, linking with that, you know, people m might have a bit more time than usual at home at the moment to get involved in campaigning, or maybe they've just been able to, you know, use this time to research and are, and are maybe sitting here listening to this podcast and thinking, you know, what can I do to help? What's the best way for me to direct my energy um, towards, you know, solidarity and supporting campaigns? So I'm wondering if you could, um, tell the listeners out there um, how they could be supporting? Um, I hope it's a good opportunity to, to, to make the most of a, of a bad situation. I mean, certainly at London Mining Network, you know, we welcome people getting actively involved. We have volunteers working on education, on research. And as I mentioned at the start, you know, we have a working group on just transition, which individuals can join and, and get involved in. And I think, you know, the last meeting we had um, we were talking to someone who was involved in Cambridge University fossil fuel divestment group who talked about maybe widening out their work to, to work at BHP I think which kind of goes back to what you were saying about you know the way local groups could maybe widen what they're doing to get involved in some of these issues so I think you know please visit our website at londonmininginetwork.org and contact us if you're interested also with our member groups, I'm sure they'd appreciate support, the wide range of them. One that springs to mind particularly is Group Coal Action Network. Finally, I think various of our member groups and London Mining Network itself are active in the run-up to the postponed uh, Conference of Party COP26 meeting on climate change, which is set for Glasgow next year. Now, it's, I hope many people in Scotland are going to be mobilising for this. There's an international solidarity committee that's part of that, which we're feeding into with many others, particularly in the hope of bringing affected community representatives to Glasgow to share on these issues. So I think there are you know, great opportunities for individuals to, to get involved, to learn and to support that work as well. That's brilliant. Now people can, you know, they find out about this thing they maybe, you know, had no idea about and now they can turn that into some positive action. Um, so, yeah, kind of continue to talk about the coronavirus pandemic. I'm wondering how it's affected workers' rights within mining companies and, and you know, the renewable supply chain. Um, we've heard that in some countries, governments are using the pandemic to kind of roll back environmental regulations. Is this the case within the mining sector as well? Uh, yeah, I mean, absolutely. 
Well, I guess I guess to address the first part about um, you know how has how has the pandemic affected workers' um, rights within mining companies um, around the world? There have been uh, many examples of, of mines that have continued to operate um, despite the demands of workers to temporarily close the mines as a as a means of uh, obviously ensuring that that the workforce um, would not be infected. And there's dozens of examples of outbreaks at mine sites. Um, and in many of these cases, the workers were making demands prior to the outbreaks that the mine, you know, be temporarily closed for a time. And so we've seen that. We've also seen some really troubling, really concerning trends where, for example, um, at some of the industrial copper cobalt mines in the DRC, um, workers have been essentially forced, they've been given a decision where they can go home on a, what's referred to as a technical leave, where they might not receive compensation um, or remain on site for for months on end, um, working excessive shifts um, with poor accommodation and, and poor food at times. And so you've seen some really extreme examples of, of workers' rights um, being taken away and being abused um, during the, the pandemic. You're also seeing another really troubling uh, trend, which is the increasing criminalization and increasing militarization of protests and threats faced by by community leaders who are, who are resisting mining projects. So there's a lot of governments um, and police forces and military forces um, which have used the, the context of, of quarantines or of lockdowns as a way of cracking down on protest and criminalizing protests, despite the fact that uh, many of these ongoing protests have adapted and have taken on social distancing measures and have taken on um, you know, appropriate uh, practices to ensure their their health and safety. This has been used, you know, very cynically um, and, and, and abused rather by police and military and paramilitary groups to to attack protests and and shut them down. And then, of course, the the other trend um, that you mentioned, um, which is again being seen around the world from places like Indonesia to the United States, um, is the push to deregulate the mining industry. And so, there's several things going on. You have for example, here in the United States, the Environmental Protection Agency has told companies that any environmental non-compliance that they can justify, these companies can justify as a, as a result of the pandemic, will not be punished by the EPA. There have been uh, ongoing permitting processes which require public consultation, which have gone ahead without that consultation, because of course, in the context of the pandemic, it's 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 not possible to have the same degree of consultation as could be done previously and yet these projects are still going ahead and still being permitted so there's a whole host of issues and then you have other countries where um the logic of having to reactivate the economy and kickstart the economy as as some countries are planning to emerge out of lockdown and out of quarantine they are arguing that mining needs to be promoted needs to be invested in needs to be deregulated as a way of of boosting that um that economic reactivation and so all of these trends are being observed around the world in, in different ways. And there's actually a report that um, both London Mining Network and Earthworks and many other member groups and, and allied groups helped put together, which focuses on these issues. So, yeah, obviously, there's a lot of negative trends that you just um, outlined there that are very much linked to COVID-19. But there's um, lots of groups also pushing for a green recovery. Um, or just recovery. Um, and I'm wondering how we can move towards an economy no longer based on extractivism and what we really need to do as we recover from this pandemic to, to move towards that. 
I think, as I noted earlier, I think you know, there is a growing interest in solutions such as a circular economy and degrowth. And some of these are longer term, but I think you know that there's there's definite starting points. And I think practically the starting point at the moment uh, is the general movements happening around green new deals, particularly in uh, Europe, in the US, and of course in the UK. I think that's where the recovery from the pandemic you mentioned kind of merges into this because many of the calls for post-COVID renewal and new jobs are taken on board calls for a green recovery, which is fine, which is good and correct. Um, But again, clearly that can't be done at the expense of mines affected communities in the South. I think with that in mind, it's worth noting that there's been um, a growing call for a global Green New Deal. So I think that moves away from that idea that it's just about national jobs and national growth to one which is much more based on the types of global justice issues that Benjamin was outlining earlier on. And I guess just on that, you know, how do we get there? You know, I mentioned earlier on about that idea that there needs to be sort of personal change and governmental business change, etc. But I think it's worth saying that that required change doesn't require just personal responsibility. I mean, it really does need to be system change. It's not just about, you know, do we not take this one flight? You know, as we say, it does need a, a radical reshifting of how we live. I, uh, I absolutely agree with, with everything that Britt just said. And I would also just add that, you know, I think the solutions, um, you know, you can find the solutions everywhere, really. And, and I think particularly for people who, who do live on the front lines of extractivism and people who do often bear, you know, the, the brunt, the harshest brunt of, of these realities, um, that, you know, th- those, are, those are the people, those are the communities um, who, who really have the best sense of, of what the solutions and what the pathway forward is. All right. Well, thank you so much, guys. That's been really wonderful to chat to you. I've, I've I read the report, but I've also learned so much just from um, listening to you speak as well. So it's been it's been brilliant for me, and I'm sure it's going to be brilliant for our listeners out there as well. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Have a good day. Thank you. Bye. You can find the link to the report we discussed today, a justice transition is a post-extractive transition, in the description of this podcast. Witt and Benjamin have also provided links to some of the other projects they're working on, as well as some of the reports they referenced in our discussion today. And you can find these in the podcast description as well. This podcast was brought to you by Young Friends of the Earth Scotland, a network of young activists fighting for climate and social justice. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter.